want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Malachi. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you'd be welcome to borrow one from the back. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of those as our gift to you. Uh, If you've been with us through the summer, you know that we've been walking through the book of Malachi. Uh, We didn't quite get to the end by the time I left for vacation, and so we are coming back today to to wrap up this study. Next week, we will embark on a new study uh, of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount just a few pages later in the scriptures, we'll be, uh, we'll be looking at that, Matthew 5 to 7, over the coming months. Have you ever, I'm sure you have, you've heard a story, and as that story unfolds, as you begin to hear it, you find yourself saying, maybe even out loud, oh no, don't do it. This is not a good idea. I remember hearing a story years ago about an event that happened in Arizona, Uh, Arizona Highway Patrol were mystified when they came upon the smoldering uh, wreckage embedded in a cliff about 100 feet above the highway. It looked like uh, an airplane crash, but it turned out to be a vehicle. What what happened was a uh, they they figured it out in a in a lab eventually from the debris. It seems that a former Army sergeant had gotten a hold of a JATO unit. It's a jet assisted takeoff unit solid jet fuel used for uh, big transport planes when they have short runways and a heavy load just to give them an extra boost. He he got a hold of one and he apparently went out to uh, a stretch of highway in Arizona where he wanted to try and achieve really uh, high speed. And so he got there and the highway, it was a straight stretch of highway in Arizona, about 3.9 miles long. He attached the JATO rocket to his car and then he got into the car. And, and just as I began to hear this story, I thought, oh, no, don't do it. This is not a good idea. Don't do it. He accelerated, and then he hit the ignition button on this rocket. Uh, they were able to determine that he took off uh, by the, the charred or the, the, the melted asphalt on the highway. He, he started the rocket about 3.9 miles away from where the highway bent, and there was a cliff in front of it. He accelerated to somewhere between 250, 300 miles per hour uh, for about 20 seconds, at which time he applied the brakes. The tires melted, leaving rubber streaks on the highway. Uh, A few seconds later, he he was experiencing G-forces, usually reserved for fighter pilots in dogfights. About 15 seconds later, he left the highway, about 1.3 miles away from the cliff, and uh, was launched into the air uh, where he crashed. Uh, his Chevy Impala. Now, since I first heard that story, I have found out that it's, in fact, an urban legend. It didn't happen. But I didn't know that for years. And nonetheless, my experience when I first heard it, and perhaps your experience here this morning hearing it now, is, is just to respond, right? Just, just reflexively go, oh, no, don't do This is not... A good idea. Don't attach a rocket to your car and, and hit the, like, just don't do it. This morning, as we turn to this final section of Malachi, we are, are really, we're entering into a, a part of the text where we, we can have that same sentiment. We're going to witness some in Israel, many in Israel who are rejecting God in, and it's a text that's just going to move us to say, no, don't, don't do this. Rethink what you're doing. Rethink your course of action. You're on the wrong road. This is a bad idea. Now, before 
uh, I read that text, let me remind you, if you've been with us, and for those who are just joining us today, you're just getting like the final part of the sermon series. Let me bring you up to speed on the, the book of Malachi. Uh, the book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. It was, though we don't know exactly the date, it was probably written somewhere around the middle of the 5th century B.C. What that means historically is that this is happening after the exile, in the post-exilic period. So in the story of God's people in the Old Testament, uh, they've, they've already had sort of their golden age, if you will, under King David. Uh, after Solomon, Solomon's reign came to a, a dismal end. The kingdom is torn apart into the ten northern tribes and the southern nation of Judah, two nations. Uh, because of their unfaithfulness, because of their idolatry, eventually uh, the nation of Israel in the north goes into exile at the hands of the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And they, they actually never return. They're called the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. The southern nation of Judah fares a little bit better for a little while, but about 150 years after that, they too, because of their unfaithfulness, they go into exile as well, this time at the hands of the Babylonians. But God makes a promise that one day there will be a return. And so 70 years later, uh, under the Persians, uh, Israel is allowed to return. Even the nation of Judah in the south is called Israel in our text and elsewhere in Scripture. This is the remnants of Israel. This is what's left of the nation of Israel. They're allowed to return. And so they return. In Malachi's day, they're back in the land. But the reality is people are disappointed with the results. They're back. The temple of Solomon has been rebuilt, but it's a pale shadow of its former glory. Probably by the time Malachi is on the scene, the wall has been rebuilt for the city of Jerusalem. But much of the city is likely still in ruins. But the population uh, that has moved back, that has returned from exile, is a fraction of what it was before. Uh, not to mention the fact that they are under foreign rule still. They're under the thumb of Persia. So things are not good. They're not what they wanted, not what they expected. And so uh, things are bleak and people are remarkably cynical. They're harboring doubts about their status in relationship to Yahweh and his love for them. And it's, it's into that context that Malachi prophesies that he speaks. And in the beginning of Malachi's letter or pro prophecy, God speaks and he says to his people, I have loved you. And, and not simply I have loved you in the past. I have loved you and I love you still. That's how the book of Malachi Begins speaking to this people who are discouraged, who are cynical, who are full, filled with doubts. I have loved you and I love you still. But from there, Yahweh has gone on to confront his people on thing after thing after thing, on, on the ways in which they are breaking covenant, the ways in which they are violating the covenant with him. First, he, he con confronts them on the fact that they are bringing to him sacrifices that are blemished. They were to bring... Uh, they were to bring lambs that were without a blemish for sacrifices, but they're bringing lame and, and blind and diseased animals, something they wouldn't even do to human authorities. He, he confronts them on the fact that they are violating his design for marriage by marrying foreign women, by divorcing. He, he lists in the next disputation, he lists seven things. He says that you're practicing sorcery, adultery, perjury, defrauding workers, oppressing widows and orphans, depriving foreigners of justice. In the last text that we looked at, the last disputation between them and, and Yahweh, Yahweh confronts them and says, you are, you are robbing me. 
by not bringing tithes. In the Old Testament, tithes was part of the, the covenant law. It wasn't this optional thing. They were to bring 10% of their income and give it to God. That was an expectation. And, and they weren't. They were bringing a small fraction of that or nothing at all. And, and Yahweh says, that is in fact robbing me. Of course, the point then, if you were with us, is not like if they would have simply brought their 10%, everything would have been good. They jumped through that hoop. No, the tithing was merely symptomatic of a deeper problem. Their relationship with Yahweh, they were living in rebellion against God. They were rejecting His authority in their lives. And so they are being unfaithful in relationship with Yahweh. So by the time we get to the text that we turn to today, chapter 3, verses 13 to the end of the book, one thing that should be abundantly clear is that Israel is being unfaithful in relationship to God, that they are violating the covenant in a myriad of ways. They are breaking God's covenant law in a myriad of ways, that things are not the way they're supposed to be. God has been confronting them over and over and over and over again. And we come to this. If you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along. Pick things up in chapter 3, verse 13, to the end of the book. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. I want to, in our time together this morning, I want to walk through the text and do three things. First, I want to explore with you uh, two very different ways of thinking that are described in our text. Two very different ways of thinking that lead to two very different ways of living. Okay, We, we see that spelled out in our text. I want to uh, help uh, explore that with you. Secondly, I want to consider with you two very different ends, two very different destinies that are described here in our passage. And then thirdly, I want to help you see the one desire of God that each of us would repent and believe, that we would uh, hear his warning and respond to his gracious invitation. 
Okay, so two ways of thinking that lead to two ways of living, two destinies and one desire. There are two radically different ways of thinking described in our text. Let's turn to the first one. Beginning with the one we encounter first, chapter 3, uh, verse 13. There we read Yahweh's charge against his people. And you might recall, if you've been with us, uh, there are disputations throughout this book. That is, God uh, announces a charge against his people, and then they, they debate with him. So that's what's going on here. So God speaks. Yahweh speaks. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. That's been the format. God charges them, and, and the people respond. Generally, they say, what? How have we done that? We see the same thing here. You have spoken arrogantly against me, the Lord. And the people say, yet you ask, what have we said against you? Right? They're like, what? How? How are we doing that, Yahweh? The heart of their belief is summed up with these words. The way they are thinking is summarized by God in verse 14. You have said, it is futile to serve God. This is what the people of God are thinking. This is what they are expressing. It is futile to serve God. Serving God is completely useless. There is no point in serving God. That is what they have come to believe. That is what they express. Listen to the question that they have asked in the process of coming to that conclusion. They ask, what do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? There are two aspects here uh, that are brought together to sort of speak to what it looks like to serve God. Uh, One is obedience to God and one is worshiping of God. Uh, Obeying God is, is a pillar of of relationship with God, of biblical faith, carrying out God's requirements, doing what God calls us to do. Not that we're ever saved by our obedience, by what we do, but we are called to obey Yahweh. We are called to do what he commands us to do, to submit ourselves to his kingship and his authority. So that's part of what it means to serve God, is to obey God. The other part of what it means to serve God here is to worship God. Now, uh, they speak about going about like mourners before the Lord. You might ask, well, how, how does that how, how does that mean worship? Uh, in, in Israel, in, in their life with God, mourning would have been an aspect of worship. When there was grief, when there was uh, repentance, they would have mourned. And, and what they would have done, uh, it would have involved going without the pleasures of life. It would have been uh, putting on sackcloth. You've heard of that. Uncomfortable clothing. Uh, often with ashes, you would dirty yourself. Uh, you would go without food, sometimes without water. And this would be an expression, an acted out way of, of showing your desperation to God. That God, way, God would see your grief. That God would respond to your grief. So it was, it was kind of the most extreme part of worship. Like something that should be really visible and obvious to God. That's the point here. You do it so that God... God's attention, would, God would see you. And so here's what God's people are thinking, the conclusion they come to. When we obey God, it makes no difference. When we worship God, even if we're mourning, fasting, in sackcloth and ashes, it makes no difference. It does not matter what we do. It is futile. It is useless to serve God. In fact, there's more to their thinking. Look at verse 15. They go on, they say, but now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Not only does it seem that obedience and worship are futile and make no difference, but they look around them and they say the arrogant are flourishing. The, the, the evildoers are, are getting away with whatever they do. 
Even when people test God, even when people try and provoke God, God does nothing. He doesn't respond. Whether it's sins of commission, things that people are doing wrong, God seems to do nothing. Sins of omission, things they should be doing that they're not doing, God does nothing. If they fail to keep the covenant, nothing happens. It, when, when they did what they were supposed to, nothing happens. They, so, so why bother? It's futile. That is what they have come to believe. That is what God's people that Malachi speaks to, that's what they believe, that's what they think. It's useless to follow God. And obviously that way of thinking shapes their way of living. Think through all the the things that Yahweh has been confronting them for throughout this book. He, He said, you're bringing blemished sacrifices. You're bringing animals that are so deformed and decrepit that you... You wouldn't even dream about bringing those to earthly human governors. You're violating my design for marriage. You're guilty of adultery and of perjury and fraud and oppression, injustice. You're robbing me. And remember, that that list is is not exhaustive. It's merely representative. What is utterly beyond debate is that Israel is living an utterly unfaithful life and that that Utter unfaithfulness is a result of what they believe. They think it's useless to serve God. That's what they express here. And consequently, they're not serving Him. It's worth noting, isn't it, that this is precisely how many in our world today think. That even if there is a God, there's no point in living for Him, in serving Him, in obeying Him and worshiping Him. I mean, if if God exists... His existence is largely irrelevant. I'm just going to live my life the way I want to. Or people look around and they say, hey, look, I look around the world and, and how can God be present? There's all this suffering or evil people get away with things. Good people suffer. And so if there's a God, it's futile to serve him. We, we see this mindset. This is part of our culture. If there's a God, it's, it's, it's irrelevant. And it doesn't shape people's lives. It's what many think today. And it's what Israel believed in Malachi's day. But not everyone. There was within Israel a small group, a remnant, who believed something different, who who thought differently. Look with me now at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other And the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. Though things in Israel are not good, though the majority of Israel believes that it is futile to serve God, there is a minority who believes differently, who thinks differently. They're described as those who feared the Lord. I've talked about that before. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It's important that we don't misunderstand this phrase, that we don't simply dissect it into its various parts and go, okay, I understand fear, and I understand the Lord, and so fearing the Lord, that that must be something that makes you want to flee and run away from God. That's not the point. To fear the Lord is a combination of awe or holy reverence, holy respect, and passionate love of trust. It is... Flip Bias puts it this way, to fear God is to have a heart that is sensitive to both his godness and his graciousness. It means to experience great awe and a deep joy simultaneously when one begins to understand who God is and what he has done for us. 
To fear the Lord is to understand who God is, that God is almighty, that he is our creator, that he is our, our, our authority, our king. To understand that we are created with dignity as his image bearers, called into, created for a relationship with him, that through our sin we have rebelled against him, that by his grace that relationship can be restored. Understanding the reality of who he is and who we are and what he has done and living in light of that, those truths. That's what it means to live in the fear of the Lord, to understand him, his holiness, and that we are accountable before him, that, that he is awesome and mighty and understand that we are in need of his grace and that he's offered it. That is to live in the fear of the Lord. This group in Israel, this small remnant who lives in the fear of the Lord, says their names are written in the scroll of remembrance. I want to suggest some people would contend that, or, or think immediately of, well, this is the book of life that God writes, I would suggest that that's not what's going on here. This scroll of remembrance is something uh, similar to what we see going on in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. This, I would say, is a covenant renewal document. This is this group of people getting together and before the Lord and before one another, recording their names and saying, no, we are going to live in the fear of the Lord. We are going to honor the covenant. This is a covenant renewal document. The Lord sees, he hears, he sees this, uh, this remnant. Despite the bleak circumstances of their day, despite the fact that the arrogant seem to be prospering, despite the fact that evildoers seem to be getting away with whatever they do, this group believed that Yahweh could be trusted. They believed that Yahweh was good. They believed that Yahweh loved them. They believed the promises of Yahweh and, and, and that one day he would restore things, that he would set things right. And so they honored his name. They lived for him. They served him, they worshiped him, they sought to obey him. Two radically different ways of thinking that result in two radically different ways of living. We see that the majority who say, hey, it's useless to serve God, and they're living unfaithfully. And this remnant who fear the Lord say, no, 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 it's, it's not useless. We believe and trust and love God, and they live in a way that reflects that. Let's turn our attention now to two different Two very different ends or destinies. Again, Yahweh speaks, verse 17. He says, on the day when I act. On the day when I act. This is a reference to what uh, throughout Scripture in many places, Old Testament, New Testament, is, is often called the day of the Lord. There is a day coming, says Yahweh, when he will act. Uh, we encounter that language throughout Scripture, and it refers to the day when God will act decisively, a day when distinction will be made between the righteous and the wicked. It will be seen, it will be clear. Listen to verse 18. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Do not. Perhaps right now one cannot see that distinction. Perhaps right now things are muddy. Perhaps they're confused when you look around you. But a day is coming, Yahweh says. The day of the Lord, the day when, when God will act decisively, and that distinction will be obvious. And for those who are righteous, for those who, who, who serve God, here's what God says. Look at verse 17. They will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. No matter what happens now, no matter what you encounter in this life, no matter what you have to endure in this world, on that day, 
On the day when God acts decisively, those who are faithful to him, his treasured possession will be seen. It will be clear, that distinction. They are his treasured possession. He will spare them. As I studied and prepared, I I thought about this idea of treasured possession, and I thought, what, what would I say is a treasured possession that I have? And I really was hard pressed. I have some stuff that I like. But if my house were to catch on fire, what would I want to save? And I thought, really, probably only one thing, and that's our photo albums, right? Because they have all those memories, especially of early on, and our oldest son, and our middle son, and some of Brennan, most of that got on the web, so it would probably be safe. There's lots of pictures of Brennan. That's not my point, if you're listening, Brennan. (laughs) There was a shift that happened during the course of raising three boys where uh, some stuff would be safely in the cloud. But, but I would want to run downstairs if my house caught on fire and huck those albums out the window because those would be irreplaceable. That, that would be a treasured possession. Yahweh says those who are faithful to him, that this remnant who live in the fear of him, the fear of the Lord, they are his treasured possession. And that on that day when he acts decisively, he will spare them. They are valued and loved and will be preserved. Such will not be the case, however, for those who have stubbornly, persistently violated the covenant. Those who have persisted in their rejection of Yahweh. Those who have spoken arrogantly. Those who have said it is futile to serve the Lord. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 4. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left to them. The day that is coming, the day on which this distinction between the righteous and the wicked will be seen, will be for those who reject God a day of judgment. A fire will burn. Not a root or branch will be left. It's it's a picture. This is imagery of total destruction. In verse 3, we read on, Yahweh says to the redeemed, to his treasured possession, he says, then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act. Now, this isn't saying that God's people, the redeemed, will trample on the wicked people. It's saying the wicked people will be ashes on the soles of your feet. There, There will be they will be destroyed. The, the, the enemies of God, the enemies of God's people will be no more. There will be no more threat, is the point. All that will remain of enemies is ashes under your feet. And so that is the one destiny, this picture of judgment, of fire, of destruction. But there is another end, another destiny. We think of God preserving, saving his treasured possession. There are a couple marvelous images employed in this part of our text. Verse 2, we read this. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. The first imagery is, is that of the warmth of the rays of the sun. We've had a pretty good summer, haven't we? And, and hopefully it's not quite over yet. Though it's felt a little cooler in night, evenings and mornings. But this, this imagery of the warmth of the sun, and ever since we got air conditioner, it's a lot easier to enjoy the warmth of the sun, I'll just be honest. Because I can step outside and just go, ah, oh, it's nice. 
and, and I can sleep where it's cool. But, but it's this image of, of just the warm rays of sunshine, right? This, this warmth and healing of restoration. That, that's one of the images. And the second image is that of, of well-fed, frolicking calves. Now, I'm not a farmer. I don't know that I've ever seen well-fed, frolicking calves. But I can imagine them. Well-fed, that's, that's not just you know, calves that have grazed and found what they could, but well-fed from the farmer's hand. They got the good stuff. They're well-fed, they're, they're satisfied, and they're, they're frolicking. I, maybe some of you have seen frolicking calves, but I'm imagining frolicking puppies or frolicking little boys. That I can imagine when they're, when they're just happy. This is an image of great joy and celebration and exuberance. And that's the end for those who walk in the fear of the Lord. That's the picture here of joy and delight, of of shalom, of things being the way they're supposed to be. The end for those who do not serve the Lord, who reject Yahweh, is destruction. But for those who walk in the fear of the Lord, there is delight and joy. Leads us to the third thing. We've looked at two ways of thinking that lead to two different ways of living and two ends, two destinies. But there's one desire of God that we see here. Do you remember how this whole book of Malachi begins? Yahweh declares to his people at the beginning of this book where Yahweh will go on and confront his people on, on, on all of the ways in which they are being unfaithful. But it begins with Yahweh saying, I have loved you and I love you still. That's where this book begins. Now I want you to look at the very last line of this book where we read, I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Those are the last words of Malachi. Not only the last words of Malachi, but the last words of the Old Testament. I will come and strike the land with destruction. The end. Pardon? Right? Like, really? That's how the Old Testament ends? It seems like a horribly depressing note, does it not? Yet I want to help you recognize something. Here's what J.P. Uh, J. Campbell Morgan writes this. I want you to hear this. The Old Testament does not end with a curse pronounced, but with a curse threatened. Not with a declaring that hope is forever past and that there can be no redemption and no deliverance, no further word, but with a statement intended to teach that God has not yet pronounced this curse and that he does not desire to do so. It is the last appeal of love aimed at avoiding calamity. After all that we have witnessed, after all that we have encountered as we have walked through this book, the wickedness of God's people, their stubborn rejection of Yahweh, their persistent unfaithfulness, their conclusion now that it is useless to serve God, after all of that, Yahweh does not announce, pr- pronounce a, cl- a curse over them. He threatens a curse. And he pleads with men and women to repent. He pleads with them. This is like us hearing that story saying, don't do it. This is a bad idea. Don't continue on the road that you were on. Don't hit the ignition button on that rocket. Because destruction lies ahead. 
We read in verse 5, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and that dreadful day of the Lord comes. Even now, as the book comes to a close, Yahweh announces that he will yet send another messenger, another prophet, Elijah. Now, why Elijah? Because Elijah is the paradigmatic a prophet calling unfaithful people to repentance. Read his story in 1 Kings. Elijah went to a wicked people, an idolatrous people, a Baal-worshipping people, and he called people to repentance. He called them to turn back to Yahweh. And Jesus, in this moment, Yahweh says, I will yet send an Elijah to you, calling you to turn, calling you not to continue on this road of rejecting me. God still waits. God still longs. God still patiently endures, calling men and women to repentance, to receive his grace. And centuries after Malachi proclaimed these words, centuries after this was written, Yahweh, God in human flesh, as he was crucified for sins that he did not commit, as he was dying on a cross out of love for his creation, for rebellious human beings like you and like me, he would speak these marvelous words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Do you see? Do you see God in his amazing mercy and grace, patiently, persistently urging, imploring, inviting each one of us to come to him and receive life, to come to him and receive his grace and his mercy. Verse 4 here says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb. He calls us into a life of faith. He calls us into a life of faithfulness, not so that we somehow merit his love and his grace. We could never do that. But as those who receive his love, as those who receive his mercy, that we would, we would surrender to him and that we would live under his authority as our king, humbly serving him, worshiping him, and striving to obey him. Do you remember our urban legend sergeant with the Jada rocket strapped to his car? If you are here this morning, and you have never repented and put your faith in Jesus, I want to say to you, don't do it. Don't, don't stay on the road in which you are on. You are headed for judgment. God in His love and mercy is calling out to you to surrender to Him, to come to Him, to repent and believe, to turn away from your rebellion, to turn to Him and surrender to His authority, to receive His grace, to receive His mercy. There is a clear warning of judgment to come on all those who reject God, all who will ultimately say there is no point in serving God. There is a warning here, and I want to implore you. I want to implore you to repent and believe, to turn to the Lord, to receive His love and His grace. He cries out to you. As Elijah cried out, as John the Baptist cried out, repent and turn to God. Repent and believe. Repent and receive His love. Receive His mercy. Receive His grace. Receive His gift of life. It's available to all who come to Jesus in faith. A day is coming, but it's not here yet. It's not yet too late.
And for those of us who have repented and put our faith in Jesus, I want to say three things. Three things that I want us to take to heart. First, is that no matter what we may be enduring, no matter what we may yet endure, a day is coming, hear this, a day is coming when we will frolic like well-fed calves. A day of amazing joy. A day is coming, no matter what we suffer, no matter what hardships, no matter how troubled we are by what's going on around us and in our own lives, a day is coming where we will frolic like well-fed calves. That's number one. Number two, Second, as we wait for that day to come, we are called to faithfulness to Yahweh. Faithfulness to God, not as a means of being made right, but because we have been redeemed, because we are His, we strive to obey Him, to serve Him, to love Him, to live our lives for Him. And third, we need to remember that just as Yahweh here, our missionary God, our God who longs for the lost to come to Him, who longs for those who are rebellious and far from Him to turn in repentance and faith, He is a missionary God, and we as His people are His missionary people. And so we are called to live on mission. We are called to to seek the lost all around us, to implore them, to invite them, to point them to the one who loves and is gracious and is patient and is persistent, that we would be His missionary people. May Christ, by His Spirit working in us, move us to those things to know with confidence that there is a day of great joy ahead, that we are called to follow him faithfully in response and live as his missionary people. Amen.